0: All right, everybody. Hello, and welcome back to the show. I'm Glenn McDorman, and this is ATOS, your El Cid Speculative Fan Fiction Book Club podcast by Clay Temple Media. This episode is another installment in the bonus series that I'm doing with medieval historian Jay Deal, in which we talk about medievalism in speculative fiction, We've now done five episodes on Foundation by Isaac Asimov, but today we are going to switch tacks and we're going to do a single, probably very long episode on a brilliant fantasy novel by Guy Gabriel Kay. This novel is The Lions of Al-Rassan. It was published in 1995. I'm very excited about this. Jay, welcome back to the show.
1: Thanks for having me back.
0: So maybe as a way to get into talking about this book, Jay, let's just talk about our personal history with this. Have you read The Lions of
1: al Rasan before now? This is my first time reading The Lions of Al-Rassan. Uh, was sort of aware of it out there as a, a core fantasy novel and one of Guy Gabriel K's sort of, I think, fair to say most famous works. But no, I had not read it to this point. In fact, I've read relatively little Guy Gabriel Kay, uh in my life. Um, several books when I was young of which um, a song for our bone is the one that struck the most memory and sort of resides most prominently in my mind as something that was formative uh, in my childhood. But I would not consider myself someone who has as much experience as he should with Guy Gabriel K. Right. Given given that you have gone on to become a medieval historian and <laughs> K's Especially entire given that. stick. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. It turns
0: out I'm a fraud on many levels. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that's all of us, really. But yeah, Song for Arbonne was the book immediately previously to this one. And it's it's one I've done a solo episode on here. So I have also reread that book recently and uh, really loved it. And that was one, uh, you know, I read a lot of K. In fact, I discovered K just by browsing in our childhood bookstore, Anderson's Bookshop that you also later worked at. And yep. I think at that point, Tagana had just been issued in a, you know, a, a giant mass market paperback, and it just had this absolutely gorgeous cover. And uh, one, you know, winter I used some either, I don't know, Christmas or birthday gift card money to pick it up. And. The then I was hooked at that point, and so when a song for our bone came out and the Lions of Al-Rassan, those were books that uh, that you know I read, uh, you know, basically uh, well immediately. And in fact, actually, I got to read the Lions of Al-Rassan before it was published um, because uh, I don't know if you remember this, Jay, but some uh, a family that we knew from church also opened up another bookshop in our town, one that was dedicated oh, yeah. entirely to uh, speculative fiction, to science fiction and fantasy. A really great shop called Brain snacks which is uh, brand snacks yeah no yeah. longer in existence but um a uh, family that ran that shop gave me the galley that they got sent of this book oh, wow. so that I could write a review of it for their newsletter which was uh, was awesome and I still have that i mean that's not what i read from because it's going to fall apart if i try to open it uh, but it is a right. prized yeah. possession from my adolescence for sure
1: yeah i it would not surprise me actually if i read song for Bone at your suggestion back then because i i remember it being given to me as a title to read by someone and i can't think who else would be recommending fantasy literature to me at that point unless it was the people at brain snacks where i spent a lot of time in the back room playing magic the gathering right. in high school so yeah yeah
0: yeah that was that shop's big business was was, uh, was. <laughs> adolescents playing magic the gathering though it was a it was an absolutely beautiful shop too and it's a it's a shame of course right that the internet has although it is allowing us to do this podcast it has killed bookstores yeah well, that is bordering on a, uh, a lamentation, which of course we're going to be doing Indeed. a lot of in talking about this book. But let's actually move into talking about this book. And uh, we'll just start by doing a bit of an introduction to the speculative world before we get into the story. So, maybe first thing to say is that, hey, this fantasy world here is a loose analog to the high middle ages in terms of technology and social structure, right? So, it's horses, not cars, yeah. it's swords, not guns, that sort of thing. The world that we're dealing with here is a peninsula uh, attached to a bigger continent and also maybe separated from another continent by a narrow channel, a narrow saltwater channel. This continent is geopolitically fragmented, meaning that there are several uh, polities, several states on it. It is also home to three different religions. Uh, These are called, uh, or the people who practice them anyway, are called Asherites, the Kindath, and uh, actually this last one we need to have a bit of a discussion about right away wait, Jay, because I'm not sure how to pronounce it. But I'm going to pronounce it. Well, for right now, anyway, I'm going to pronounce it Jadites because it is spelled with a J. But it should probably be Hadites, shouldn't it?
1: It probably should be Hadites. Uh, But in my mind, while reading the book, I did say Jadite pretty much all the time. And it's going to be tough not for me to say that. Uh, But I agree. (laughs) It probably should be Hadites correctly. Yeah. Let's just split it. You can say
0: Jadites, and I'll say Hadites, and we'll at least there be fifty percent <laughs> right. So I would, of course, love to know what listeners have to say about exactly this question. I Actually, wonder if it's something that Kay has addressed somewhere that I'm just unaware of. But uh, we'll get into why we're you know debating even why it's a that J is a just sound or a hus sound in in uh, uh, just a you know a few minutes here. But let me give the uh, the state of the uh, the states here and also the immediate backstory. So as I said, this peninsula is geopolitically fragmented and. In the northern part, northern third, maybe we should say, of this peninsula, there are three small kingdoms. And uh, in these kingdoms, the population and the rulers are both Hadites. Uh, the rulers of these three kingdoms are relatives uh, there's two brothers and one uncle. And about a decade ago, these kingdoms were all one. They were uh, ruled by uh, a king named Sancho, and it is now his sons and brother who have divided the one kingdom into three. Though it actually used to be the case that it was three sons, but uh, one of them died, seemingly murdered, and uh, we'll have some more on that later. So that's the North. In the south, there are several small kingdoms, and these rulers are Asherites. The population is also mostly Asherite, but there are uh, Kindaths. There's a a Kindath quarter in each city. About 20 years ago, these kingdoms also were all one, and they had been for three centuries. And these were ruled by a uh, a monarch who took the title Caliph. But that Caliph was assassinated, and there's no mystery around that. He was very definitely assassinated, and the single state of al Rasan fragmented. For the last 300 years, the Asherite state of Al-Rasan has been the dominant power on the peninsula. More people, more wealth, more culture, also more land, more territory. And most years, the caliph's armies would raid into the Hadite lands of the north and loot stuff, and also just kind of make a show of force and that sort of thing. But since the assassination, since the fragmentation of Al-Rasan into a series of smaller kingdoms, the raids have stopped and in fact, it is now the Hadite kingdoms of the north who are doing the raiding south. And as our story opens, one of the Asherite kingdoms along the border has even been paying tribute to one of the Hadite kingdoms, uh, really a type of protection money. Uh, you know, you don't have to raid us, we'll just send you some cash and call it good. And that is when our story is going to begin. So let's move into talking about some uh our, our main point of view characters here. And Jay, uh, I'll let you uh, start us out.
1: All right. So the you know, we have sort of three protagonist characters, arguably, and those three main protagonist characters, of which the first that we are introduced to is a character named Amar ibn Khairan. Um, And here again, pronunciation for me is not a certain thing. We'll go with Amar for how we're going to say his name, I think. Um, We're introduced to him in the prologue to the book um, as the figure responsible for the assassination of the last caliph of Al-Rasan, essentially ushering in uh, the era of the petty kings, as they're referred to um, over and over again in al Rasan, um, And Amar ibn Khairan is, you know, in, in some ways is kind of an archetypal character that we will find in fantasy uh, here and there. Certainly a kind of courtier character. Renowned as a famous warrior, but also sort of a refined poet. This perhaps being what he's best known for is his excellent poetry, a scheming politician who's able to sort of strategize and plot successfully throughout the entire course of the novel. Um, And he becomes one of the central figures in sort of the way the geopolitics of the story play out Um, at first uh, introduced to us as sort of the chief Chancellor or counselor of one of the petty kings of al Rasan, this Amalak I of Kartada. Um, and his story gets woven in with two other characters as the novel goes on. Right. And uh, one of the things that you left out
0: there, though, Jay, of course, is that he's also incredibly handsome. That's, uh... He's incredibly
1: <laughs> handsome. Yes. This does appear to be a book of good looking people by and large. Uh, most Most of the characters seem to be very attractive, it seems. Yeah. We should also mention briefly that Amar um, is famous on the peninsula, uh, both within al Rasan and within the, the Yadite kingdoms to the north, Esperanya. Um He's famous for all his character, characteristics as this great poet. He's well known across the entire region, but his role um, as the assassin of the last caliph is also well known. So he is both famous and infamous throughout the, throughout the entire region right i mean he's he's basically a rock star who
0: also happens to be like uh, the secretary of state Exactly. And, yes. Uh, exactly. Which you know, like it's cool. I would read a book about a person like that, and hey, we did, and it was great. So it's yeah, all working well. out. And yeah. Let's go talk about the the other really handsome, uh, super awesome character, soldier character here too. And this person's name is Rodrigo Belmonte. And uh, again, just a note on pronunciations. I certainly, I won't speak for you, Jay, but I certainly am not going to be rolling my Rs because no one wants to hear me try to do that. But Rodrigo Belmonte is what I will say, and he is a member. of of the landed aristocracy of one of these northern Hadite kingdoms. And he is the greatest warrior and greatest soldier in all those kingdoms. And until recently, he held a very high uh, political or military post in his kingdom. He was the constable, a sort of war leader of the, the geographically uh, central of those kingdoms. But part of the backstory is that the king of that kingdom, uh, and this kingdom is called Valledo, by the way, uh, the king of that kingdom was killed. And then his brother moved in from the neighboring kingdom and occupied that throne. And uh, then that brother, the new king, replaced Rodrigo Belmonte because Rodrigo Belmonte was strongly suggesting that the new king may have killed the old king. Uh, the old king also was Rodrigo's best friend. Uh, basically, it's, it's Hamlet meets Prince Hal, to put it in, in Shakespeare terms. And then the last thing that I want to say about Rodrigo Bamante at this point anyway, is that he commands a private force of 150 heavy cavalry. And he and his company have worked as mercenaries around the peninsula uh, for Hadites, but also, in fact, maybe even more frequently for Asherites. Uh, this is something that they have done in times of political Turmoil. He is also, and this we definitely will talk about later, the analog for a very real historical person.
1: And I think it's worth mentioning that Rodrigo Belmonte, when the story opens, enjoys a reputation whose scope is similar that to that of Amara ibn Karans which is to say he's known across the peninsula not as a poet or anything but mm-hmm. as the scourge of Al-Rasan um, as the great Hadite soldier um, who had inflicted so many defeats upon the Asherites um, who was sort of indomitable and in- unconquerable in battle um, also married to reputedly one of the most beautiful women in Esperania, Miranda um, and has two children who we probably we will not talk that much about today, but do figure prominently in the story, um, Fornan and Diego. Right. I, I, I love Rodrigo's
0: family life, actually. It's not really so much it's on wonderful. the agenda for you know, our interest here in terms of medievalism, but I do think that Rodrigo's a, an extremely well-drawn character and that this family life that he has, and also just getting to know his family even without him, brings a real richness to his story and is really one of the strengths, I think, of this book.
1: Absolutely. But all right, Jay, we've
0: also got to meet the doctor.
1: Yeah, good. So we will presume, I I assume her name would be pronounced Jahan, uh could be wrong about this. Um, But Jahan Beth Ishak, a member of the Kindath faith, we'll talk more about that in a couple of moments, uh, residing in the kind of borderland city of Fazania, when we've sort of opened the story, which is the city Glenn mentioned earlier um, as an Asherite city, but now paying tribute uh, to one of the Yadite kingdoms in the north um, as a sort of Pay us so that you won't raid us, kind of agreement and stuff. Uh, Jahan, also based probably on a historical character, albeit not one necessarily associated with this region, is a physician, a Kindath physician. Um, Her father was a extremely famous Kindath physician, one of the most accomplished ones in the entire world. Um, And she had trained in several locations to become a physician. And as the story opens, has sort of taken over her father's practice um, for reasons that we'll try to get into. Her father has an interesting backstory here. And works as the sort of city physician within Fizania, also reputed to be extremely beautiful, but is unmarried uh, to her mother's chagrin as the story opens and will wind up playing a key role throughout the entire story as well. But she's a really fascinating character in her own right. And of course, as the story
0: commences, there's... I was going to say a love triangle, but really there's kind of a love square uh, happening with uh, the two Indeed. characters we have mentioned already. And then the, the, the last character that I'll I'll present in just uh, just a few moments. But I want to talk too about the pronunciation of her name. And, and something that we've yet to really say is that, you know, these names are in languages that exist, uh, you know, in, in our own world, right? Rodrigo Bamate yeah. is a Spanish name. Uh, Amari bin Kairan is a, an Arabic name. And then here, this is a, a Hebrew name. And, you know, yeah. In my head, I was pronouncing that J like a J. I also was pronouncing uh, that E Jahania. like Jahania. But, uh, I, you know, I don't really know. I mean, it's interesting because, yeah, her 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 surname then actually has an I in it. And of course, historically, you know, you know, J is actually just an I, I guess, you know, like if you've seen the last Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, you know all about this already. Right. Yes. But uh, yeah. So I know, you know, Arabic certainly has a J sound to it. I don't know if Hebrew does. I'm
1: sorry to say I don't know either.
0: Yeah. So uh, well, we'll just split it again so that we'll, the show will be right, even if one of us yeah. is individually Good. wrong. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let me present the the final character here, and then we'll uh, we'll get a, a brief plot synopsis here. Of what we're doing with the setting, or or what these characters are doing in the setting. But this this last character is Alvar de Payno. He is Rodrigo Belmonte's newest recruit. He's the son of one of Rodrigo's company, who's recently retired. He is essentially the reader's surrogate in that this world is mostly all new to him as well. So we, the reader, can also learn about the speculative world at the same time that he is learning about it. And he does have some things to do, but mostly he's here in the book to witness the awesome stuff that uh, Ibn Khairan and Rodrigo Belmonte do, and also to have strong feelings about those things, also, to have strong feelings about Jahane as well. But in the end, he actually, I think, probably has the biggest character arc of all. He's going to move to another country. He's going to change professions. And he's even going to convert from the Haddite religion to the Kindath religion. So he's an interesting character.
1: Yeah, I mean, his character arc really has a, a very satisfying trajectory to it, um, where you can really see the, de- the development of Someone experiencing the entirety of this world in all its kind of multicultural glory for the very first time has his eyes opened in many ways. Um, And the conclusion of his story feels very appropriate um, to to the, the, the book as a whole, I think. Right. He's, he's the character who certainly most represents the themes of this book, the
0: anti-war and the multiculturalism uh, values of, of this book, right? He goes through all of that. He All he wants when he's you know, really, just an adolescent here, right? Uh, you know, 18, 19, something like that. Really just wanting to follow in his father's footsteps to join Rodrigo Belmonte's company, join the captain's company and be you know, the yeah. best he can be, right? Or be all that he can be. And Comes to find that maybe actually he doesn't really like war that much, and in fact, that what he wants to do is not kill people but actually heal them, and then also has this religious conversion, which is a big deal for him and it's his a character that we never meet but that we hear about is his mother. We never meet his father either, but we learn that his his mother is fairly zealous about her hadite faith and therefore has really strong feelings against both Asherites and Kindaths that simply don't line up with the experience that Alvar himself has out in the, the world, right? So in terms of what Kay is trying to do with the themes and motifs of this book, it's it's really his story that I think represents those the most. And also, he's someone really, you know, I found myself rooting for in the the love square. He does get to have a bit of a relationship with Johanna. Yeah. And then Kay tricks us at the end by making us think that actually he's I gotten know. to marry her. And I teared up a little bit, even though I knew he Kay was tricking me. I couldn't, you know, it'd been decades since I read the book. So I couldn't remember exactly how he was tricking me, and I had my heart broken yeah. all over again.
1: Yeah, the uh, the trickery Kay does with the conclusion to this, with several well timed bait and switches for what you think has <laughs> happened, is actually quite masterful. I have to say, um, yeah, it, it's it's really deftly done and doesn't feel contrived, um, and and really does sort of provide a a, a really really remarkable conclusion to the story, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we should tell people what that story is. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) Yes. Well, it's a very rich story. And I I think that the novel resists attempts to give it short summaries. Um, But I'll do my best here to try to encapsulate it. But there are things that are going to be missed inevitably here. Um, I think one way to say that to talk about the narrative here is to say that the overall trajectory of the story Um, is about the process by which the kind of fragile peace um, between the Hadite and Asherite kingdoms on the peninsula begins to break down. And the central part of the story does involve these three main protagonists. And in particular, it is kind of the story begins with all three of them being exiled from their homes for one reason or another. So Jahania is forced to leave this borderland city of Fazania after she aids a silk merchant, a guy named Husari Ibn Musa. She helps him escape the purge of city notables by an Asherite king um, named Amalik, uh, Amalik of Cartada. Um, and because uh, she has aided this guy escaping this purge that was supposed to help him consolidate control over the city, she's now going to be hunted down by his agents and needs to leave Fazania. Amar ibn Khairan, who is in fact the counselor to this King Amalek, is also eventually exiled from Kartada. Because he arranges the assassination of that king in conspiracy with the king's son, Amalek II. There's complicated politics as to why this is. Amar kind of got caught up in this plot to purge a whole bunch of city notables, even though he didn't know about it, um, feels dishonored by it. And as a result, assassinates the king who had been his counselor and aids the son, Amalek II, to become the next king. Rodrigo Belmonte, he is exiled from his kingdom, Valledo, along with his company of soldiers because of how he dealt with a party of Valadin soldiers who had been raiding into Asherite lands while he was on this mission to collect tribute from Vazania on behalf of the Valadin king. Sort of a complicated story here, but part of the upshot is there is infighting going on amongst the Yadites. There is not any clear agreement on how to interact with Asherites. And because Rodrigo Belmonte deals badly with a Valladin notable who is close to the king, he is sent into exile with his company as well. All three of our main characters choose to go into exile to the same place, the lakeside city of Ragosa, taking service with a king named Badir, who quite unusually has a kindeth chancellor named Mazur ben Avran. There's a lot that happens in this section of the story, but overall, during their time in Ragosa, the trio forms bonds um, that are supposed to sort of transcend their political and religious differences. This being one of the key themes, I think, of the story. And Jahania, in particular, seems to slowly fall in love with both Rodrigo, who is married, and Amar, although Alvar is also in love with Jahania. That's complicated. Love quadrangle <laughs> that you're talking about there. Um, and we have these very nice scenes of them all sort of bonding over shared interests and the, the shared sort of beauty of the city that they are living in. But political events elsewhere eventually kind of determined that their companionship in Ragosa is not going to last. So we have, for instance, Yadite clerics from the north of Esperania bringing news of a holy war against the Asherites far to the east somewhere, and who are trying to convince the Yadite kings of the peninsula to go to war with the Asherites to pursue a holy war. There's growing hostility towards the Kindath that's being kindled by Asherite kings, which eventually leads to a massacre of the Kindath in the city of Fazania, which pushes Jahan Anya back to her home, along with Rodrigo and Amar, who are her good good friends and want to help her out at this point. We have ambitious Asherite kings, and in some cases, outlaws, which leads to an alliance with the Majriti, who are tribal Asherites across the sea, um, who sometimes consider the Asherites of Al-Rasan to be too secular and not devoted enough to their religious causes. And so we just have all these kind of movements, all these political movements that are slowly putting pressure on the situation on the peninsula. And when the inevitable inevitable war eventually breaks out. Amar ibn Khairan returns to the service of the Asherite king, Amalek II. Rodrigo Belmonte returns to the service of the Valadin, Yadite king, Ramiro, each of them becoming the leader of their respective armies and going to war with each other, despite the fact that they're close friends. And here again, many things happen, but I think the denouement of the novel, the, the sort of culmination of these storylines, is a ritual combat scene that is organized between Abar ibn Khairan and Rodrigo Belmonte on the eve of a battle between their armies, the two of them chosen as champions to face each other in single combat both renowned warriors um, and both good friends with each other at this point. And this is one of the sages Kay cleverly disguises the results of this combat for many, many pages. But it is eventually revealed that Amar kills Rodrigo in this combat scene. And in a short epilogue, we learn that Amar and Jahania have gotten married and along with Alvar, who has converted to Kindath and has become a physician himself, they leave Alrasan for the Kindath's City of learning called Serenica on another peninsula to the east, a loose analog for Italy. And in the meantime, King Ramiro Valedo, with his forces led by the sons of Rodrigo Belmonte, completes the conquest of Al-Rassan and becomes known as King Ramiro the Great, with the Yadite religion eventually triumphant on the peninsula over the Asherite religion.
0: Whew. <laughs> yeah, that was masterful, Jay. I I gave you a tall <laughs> task there in trying to boil this uh, six hundred plus page novel uh, into just a brief synopsis, and you you totally nailed it there. And wow, yeah, there is so much plot that happens in the epilogue, right? The like the last I thirty know. pages of this book <laughs> so much tells that's us unraveled. Yeah, exactly. But it's it's all masterful. I just love this book, and you know, there's a lot of this book. A big percentage of this book is about something that you know I, I knew would not show up in the synopsis, which is this, uh, this festival in Rigosa, oh, <laughs> you know, so like, wonderful. and it's the so carnival. wonderful. Oh, yeah. The God. carnival, exactly. And it's, it's all brilliant stuff, but, you know, doesn't really impact so much on the, you know, the, the, the bare bones of the plot there, but it's just a, a beautiful book about a really well-drawn fantasy world. And Kate lets us live in it for a long time, uh, leaving a lot actually of the plot <laughs> for that epilogue. Yeah.
1: And I mean, I, uh, to convey how really, masterfully done this novel is i mean i i've left out several assassination subplots um several sort of clever political coup subplots um there's uh an asherite outlaw trying to be a king who plays a kind of important role in the story that i have barely mentioned and although there's a lot going on in this novel it never feels heavy or overladen or weighted down with unnecessary material. Um, every scene feels to, to like it's serving a purpose, like it is advancing the story of these characters and introducing us to some fundamental aspect of the world. Um, it it really is quite a, quite a gracefully done story all the way through with every scene really sort of unfolding something for the reader.
0: Yeah, just an absolutely brilliant book. I'm so glad that we got to read it. But now we've got our real work cut out for us, Jay, where we need to go talk about medievalism in this book. And Kay is, I think, pretty famous for essentially turning bits of the Middle Ages into a fantasy world. And that's exactly what he has done here. And so this book is uh, an analog for 11th century Iberia. And maybe to get us into that, I'll start just by by showing how we know that that is true. I mean, one of the ways that we know that that's true is that Case says so in the acknowledgments. But hey, maybe maybe you're 15 and you don't read those. You just want to get straight into the story. You can still tell that this is 11th century Iberia. Uh, The languages we brought up already is one. And even just looking at the names again, right? We've got a lot of Spanish names here. Rodrigo Belmonte, Ramiro, González, Diego Fernan, and and so on Miranda as well, lots of them and then we've got Arabic Amalik uh, Amalek, uh Amar, Husari and you know lots and lots of names that list can go on. But also the the place names, right? So this peninsula uh, is called Esperania, which is just a, a you know a, a riff on Hispania. Uh, El yeah. Rasan is the equivalent of Al Andalus. The kingdom of Valledo is uh, the or the name anyway is inspired by the city of uh, Vaidoyed. Uh, the kingdom of Halonia is inspired by the city of Caronia the city of Orvedo. Uh, And these are all places we see on the map and meet in the the plot, by the way. The city of Orvedo is inspired by the name Oviedo and is in fact at the location of Oporto on the Atlantic coast, uh, also uh, adjacent to the or situated next to the River Durek, which is in turn inspired by the River Duero in actual Iberia. Ragosa, uh, where this carnival takes place, is Zaragoza or Saragossa. The city of Cartada is actually the city of Cordoba. The uh, former caliph's capital uh, is this beautiful city called Silvenis here in the book, but is actually an analog for um, what in English we call Seville, or in Spanish, Sevilla. Uh, and both of these last two cities, Silvenis and Cartada, are both on the river Guadiara, which sounds like the Guadiana, although which, which is a river in Spain, although both of these cities are actually on the river Guadalquivir. Anyway, personal names, place names, let us know this is medieval Iberia. Um, and so that's another way that we know. But also the physical geography is very similar as well, right? The rivers are all in the right place. The mountains are sort of in the right place. There's a little sort difference of there. in the
1: right place, yeah.
0: <laughs> but then also we've got... Uh, the the religious life and the geopolitical situations, these also map onto 11th century Iberia. Almost exactly. We're going to get into those in more detail coming up. Uh, In fact, maybe now is actually a good time for you, Jay, to give us a primer on the broad historical episode and period that this novel is actually about. And then we can drill down into some of the 11th century specifics. But that big historical episode is known today as the Spanish Reconquista. So what is that, Jay?
1: The Reconquista, yeah, uh, which a lot of historians now will tell you is not a great name uh for the process you know the 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 term here being easily translated as the reconquest um which you know historically makes it sound as if you know people are taking back something that was once theirs and while there's a kind of Hmm. Legendary truth to this, a kind of mythological truth to it. Um, in practical terms, it's more just a conquest, really, than a reconquest, because the people doing the conquering have at best, the most peripheral historical relationship with the people from whom the Iberian Peninsula was originally taken. Um, this this sort of a side note on terminology that gets to some of the debates about this process that are taking place right now in the historical field. Um, the short version of this is pretty straightforward. Um, the Iberian Peninsula, the area we now think of as Spain, if you go back far enough in time, Uh, was ruled by a Christian barbarian people, one of the successor states to the Roman Empire, the Visigoths. Um, But as of about sort of 711 or so, you know, a process sort of beginning around there, the entire peninsula, not the entire peninsula, but a big chunk of it was conquered uh, by the expanding Muslim forces that had sort of swept across North Africa and eventually into what we now call Spain, the Iberian Peninsula, um, establishing the Umayyad caliphate, a sort of Muslim kingdom on this territory itself. The Christian kingdoms forced all the way to the far north, kingdoms like the Asturias and things like this. So the Reconquista, this term we use for it, is the term for the story of the Christian And here we can say reconquest of the Iberian Peninsula from the Muslim forces that had established the caliphate in 711. There was no longer a caliphate by the time this took place. Um, It's not a quick process. I think maybe we'll talk a little bit about this in some ways um, that – In the book, as Kay imagines it, the the reconquest um, is a pretty rapid process. Historically, it's a much, much slower process that isn't really completed until 1492, even though it gets underway in the 11th century. I'm not sure how much detail we should get into about all the specific events of the Reconquista, the conquest of Iberian Spain of Iber the Iberian Peninsula. There are sort of decisive battles that take place in the 13th century at Cordoba and at Seville, sort of eventually leaving the Muslims, the Muslim Forces with only a kind of small tributary state, Granada, in the very far south, and it's that that is eventually pushed out finally in 1492, this year, that kind of rings prominently in the history of Spain. Right. A lot of things happened in 1492, right?
0: As I think Americans, of course, know, right? This is the year that Christopher Columbus set sail, although he himself is Italian, carrying a Spanish flag. He's funded by Ferdinand and Isabella. Uh, 1492 was also the year of the uh, expulsion of Jews from both Ferdinand's kingdom and Isabella's kingdom, or I guess we could just say Spain in general. So yeah, a very big year. But yeah, as you say, Jay, mostly this is the Reconquista is mostly completed by the the, the 1280s. And so we yeah. then get almost, well, yeah, not almost, yeah, just about 200 years where there's this small kingdom, the kingdom of Granada in the south, you know, centered in the city of Granada, that is actually a tributary to the, the the Spanish monarchs, the Christian monarchs. And then in 1492, that situation is simply ended and and, and wrapped up uh, you know pretty pretty rapidly there actually and and was seen as i think largely fairly inevitable but yeah it's a significantly longer process than k has it that will be a discussion point later <laughs>
1: And I think part of the, the thing, you know, to, to mention briefly, the, the term Reconquista, which has this kind of dramatic pathos to it, the kind of restoration of of some kingdom that had been fallen for centuries or something like that, is based on the idea that somehow what the Reconquista was doing was restoring this uh, Christian Visigothic kingdom that had been established, you know, centuries, 500 years beforehand um, by expelling the Muslim uh, rulers from the Iberian Peninsula. But it is kind of, we have to understand this as kind of a nationalistic, kind of a romantic notion in some ways. In all practical terms, there was no real relationship between those early Visigothic Christians who settled in the Iberian Peninsula and these small Christian kingdoms um, that executed the conquest of the Iberian Peninsula, who sort of fought against the Muslim forces in Spain, Um, you know, in, in dramatic terms, in sort of legendary terms, it's the Reconquista. In practical terms, it is just really a war of conquest.
0: Yeah, the idea is that this, this kingdom of Asturias that comes into existence in the 8th century is the last outpost of the Visigothic yeah. monarchs, even though that was not really an area that they themselves actually had controlled up in, in northwest Iberia. And, you know, the idea is that it, it's just this kind of like, you know, Visigothic kingdom in exile, you know, waiting for the day when they can reclaim their throne. And it is true that there were some uh, Visigothic uh, elites who had as escaped death on the the battlefield, but then who also had not chosen to remain where they were. Most people did. Most people just continued to own their their property. They just had new political leaders and and, uh, there were some small differences there. But there were some members of the Visigothic elite who did move into that region and may actually have ended up being royalty there at some point. But the idea that by the time the Reconquista begins 300 years later, that the rulers there are in some way their descendants is pretty laughable. But there is, interestingly, in a ninth century chronicle from this region, uh, a chronicle uh, penned by a monk, there is a lamentation for the loss of the Visigothic mm. kingdom that, yeah. that calls for, if not even calls for, actually prophesies that there will be a Visigothic reconquest of the peninsula. That is totally lost sight of, uh, really, until actually the Reconquista has even gotten started. This is kind of lost sight of until about the 12th century, when it is not used in any way to justify acts of conquest or acts of war. Because look, this is a world that doesn't need those justifications, doesn't need ideological or moral justifications to steal other people's property by violence. Like that's what people do in this world. That's what it means to be a king in this world. This myth gets used really by rulers of the the kingdoms of Leon and Castile or the joint kingdom of Leon Castile really to help them shore up their own position within the kingdom it's not really about the reconquista itself
1: yeah absolutely that's a great way to put it
0: but then of course as you say jay it also does get wrapped up in then modern history nationalism right in the 19th century both the romantic and nationalist movements really grab onto this this idea uh, this legend here and it becomes a big part of the specifically really the castilian uh, national identity in spain
1: yeah. And I mean, this This could be a place to talk a little bit about Rodrigo Belmonte's character and his the inspiration for him, um, a, a legend which figures very prominently in the in the Reconquista and with sort of various modes of kind of national and communal identity in the Iberian Peninsula. Right. Uh, let, let's
0: zoom back into the 11th century here, because broadly speaking, Kay is telling the story of the events around the conquest of Toledo in 1085. But he is yeah. also making some alterations to the context of that. So I, I want to start really uh, talking about 11th century Iberia and, and then also, you know, Esperania, the fantasy world here by looking first at uh, Al-Andalus and al Rasan, and then we'll flip we'll Flip back around to the the, the Christian or, or Hadite perspective. So the the, the Caliphate of Al-Andalus comes to an end in. Well, 1009 and 1031, two dates there. 1009 is the removal of the potentially powerful caliph who was actually trying to claim even more power than he already had. He's removed uh, violently from his office, but there's a series of figurehead caliphs that last until 1031. And that's then when this unified state formally fragments into this uh, the this series of of kingdoms, uh, petty kingdoms that are called Taifa kingdoms. And then in the, the analog of this, Al-Rasan, right, we've got Ibn Khairan, who's actually assassinated this last caliph, who also is, is a figurehead. He, we're, we're told that he's a blind old man who's like a really genuinely good person, but just, it's not him who needs to go, it's the office that needs to go. But here in the the book, right, this has happened much more recently. This has happened within the lifetime of the people who are wrapped up in the conquest or the analog of the conquest of Toledo, where in, you know, the real world, it's actually been a generation previously that that's happened by people who are no longer uh, playing this uh, geopolitical game.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: And and Kay goes on then to to present the the boundary between the Hadite and Asherite lands as having been stable for a really long time and the fragmentation of Al Rasan as this new development, right, that the Hadites are just now taking advantage of. But really, in, in the real world, the, the Christian kingdoms in the north had actually been expanding south for about 30 years before the capture of Toledo. This is something that started with uh, King Fernando I in the 1050s. And so, you know, what, what's happening here, right, is that Kay is trying to play up the drama by altering the pace of events, which, as we've said, we see that in a few other places, and we'll we'll talk about them as well. But first, let's, let's talk about the sons of Fernando I, because this is actually where Kay starts his story, or at least the Haddite portion of it. Fernando I was a, a strong ruler. He had united a few disparate Christian kingdoms in northern Iberia and then expanded into cities and valleys that had been under the control of the caliphs earlier in the 11th century. But when he died, his kingdom was divided among his three sons, and in the novel, Kay renames Fernando I as Sancho, and in fact, he's Sancho the Fat, but he does retain this division among the three sons, and in both reality and this fantasy book, uh, this does not go well. In the real 11th century, the son, Alfonso VI, reunites the three kingdoms in the 1070s following the mysterious assassination of one brother uh, in 1072, and then just the outright imprisonment of the other brother in 1073. But here in the book, the role of Alfonso VI is played by King Ramiro of Vallado. And again, right, Kay has tightened up the timeline here so that this assassination business didn't happen 12 years ago, but only something like two years ago, right? So it's very recent. It's a, it's a raw wound. And there's a, a bit more to say about what Kay is adapting for his story. But I actually want to pause here, Jay, to talk about what is not here, because in 1070, there were not three Christian polities in northern Iberia. There were six, right? But Kay has half that number. He's only got the three kingdoms that correspond to Galicia, León, and Castile. Uh, it's interesting that he's leaving out, really, the, the northeast.
1: Yeah, pretty much. So Navarre, Aragon, and... Uh, Catalonia. Oh, God. Catalonia. There we go. Thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, I think some of this is just for sort of the simplicity of storytelling and things like this. Um, you know, this is a book with complicated politics already um, that can make it difficult for the reader to follow at some point. We start to introduce six Christian territories. Yeah, things start to get very complicated. I think also, you know, from a storytelling perspective, what he's really done here is try to construct a sense of the Iberian Peninsula proper, um, which is to say these northeastern territories that are sort of on the borderlands between, you know, what would nominally be the kingdom of France um, and the Iberian Peninsula. Uh, If you try to introduce something like that into the world that Kay is trying to construct or something You kind of run the risk, I think, of shifting the center of gravity of the story away from Al-Rasan, from from the Asherite and Yadite kingdoms. Um, to, to sort of, well, what does the, the rest of this continent look like? Um, you know, we learn at various points in the story that there's a kingdom called Ferriere, uh, to the northeast, which is just an analog for medieval France. Um, and it is Yadite and there's some kind of Yadite church over there and stuff. So I think it's interesting that he has left these out, but it, it does, it's, it's, it's perfectly sensible, I think, in terms of, the the story and the ethos that Kay is trying to evoke here. No, I think it's
0: absolutely the right decision for the storytelling in terms of the simplicity you're thinking of, and also just to be able to focus on the, the themes that interest him as well. And, you know, it's not just more geopolitical stuff that would be introduced if we had uh, Navarre, Aragon, and Catalonia here, but also more linguistic and cultural diversity because Catalonia Uh, speaks a different language, Catalan, which is somewhere between uh, what we call Spanish, but maybe more properly should call Castilian. It's somewhere between Castilian and French. And then also the Basque language, which is its own separate thing entirely. And, you know, Kay is already trying to explore a world with rich cultural diversity. And, you know, he, he needs that to not be any more complicated than it already is. So it's absolutely the right move. But something that's stood out to me not really so much in the text but by looking at the really marvelous map that we get at the beginning is that the the pl- area of Esperania that is closest to Ferriere is mm-hmm. called Halonia uh, it's this kingdom of Halonia and its capital is Eschalou which is sound, sounds Catalan I mean it looks kind of it like does. Spanish yeah. version of French essentially and i so there's a little nod to it at least there
1: That's true. I never noticed this. You're absolutely right, though. That's a fun little nod. And yeah, I mean, you see this on this wonderful map that, as you say, there's also this extremely imposing mountain range here, which on the map appears of sufficient size. And it's so formidable that it looks like transit between Ferriere and Esperania would be extremely difficult indeed. Like it's, you couldn't move an army through these mountains as it is depicted here, um, that it is almost an isolated, self-contained peninsula in some ways. I have no idea if this was intentional or not, um, but I think Kay really wanted, um, how shall we say, a closed ecosystem for his storytelling here, um, that he wanted this peninsula to be the site of its, the, the the fully contained site of its own story. There are some external influences here, some clerics from Theriere who show up. There are the Medjiti Maj, from across the sea, these Asherite tribal people to the south, what we would now recognize as North Africa. But he, there really is this sense here, and it it becomes quite overt towards the end of the novel when there are these laments for the loss of Al-Rasan, the beloved, that Kay really is vested in this book in having a, a contained setting that, that, the, that the, the land itself is part of the story. Um, and, and he wants it to be this kind of closed region that tells its own story. Right, and
0: that would be extremely complicated if you had these northeast kingdoms there that are at least a little bit, maybe even forty percent. I'll say, uh, just to make up percentages here, oriented on France. And it's really just yeah. accidents of the thirteenth century, actually, that that Aragon and Catalonia are are Spanish. You know that they're Spain and not not the southernmost part of of France yeah. today. Right. I mean, it, it was close to going that way.
1: Yeah. And interesting things that are also left out here that could have been in here, although this, you know, would be something to be hinted at in a flashback or or told retrospectively, you know, as as events of the past that were influenced things are the contacts between sort of. Um, the French kingdom or the Carolingian Empire and Al-Andalus um, in in terms of these sort of little border skirmishes between the the Frankish kingdom um, and Muslim armies pushing north and stuff. The, the the Song of Roland, of course, being a famous retelling of one of these events. Um, we get no sense here that, that the Asherite world has ever gone or had any attempts at going further north than it really is at this point. There's been no pushing or raiding up into the continent off the peninsula um no 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 hint of any backstory like that right and
0: and famously right that the first carolingian is charles martel martel meaning the hammer and this is a nickname he has because he defeated uh, one of these uh our raiding armies, I guess, sent from Al-Andalus in the, you know, the eighth, in the eighth century. And it's, a, it's so, and so much of the, uh, maybe not much, but some at least of the sort of political legitimacy of the Carolingian dynasty is actually wrapped up in the ability to defeat these uh Arab or Muslim armies as they encroach over the Pyrenees mountains. Uh, and, and then also, right, yeah, this, this very famous expedition that uh, we remember from this in the Song of Roland is a big part of of Charlemagne's you know, political plans as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, th- this is getting a bit far afield in some ways, um, but it's interesting how Kay has prioritized in his kind of reimagining of the historical circumstance here, Not a neat, tidy world, quite the opposite. This is a messy, complicated world, but a world with pretty clear borders at the beginning of the story in some ways. Pretty clear, tight border lines that allow us to keep the story pretty well focused.
0: Right, I mean, this is a fantasy world that is invented by someone who has uh, lived his entire life in the world of nation states and kind of takes yeah, that absolutely. as a default position, yeah. which which yeah. describes every single every single one of us too, right? The two of us, yeah. everyone listening to this podcast, uh, you know, for for centuries in the future, right? That's the world that that we live in, and and so we need that to, you know, for our minds to to make sense of it, and it's absolutely from a narrative perspective the the, the right move, and I think also even just from a historical adaptation perspective, I think it's also the right move to sort of zoom in on on one aspect of this. And uh, yeah, maybe before we wander too much further afield, though, Jay, I'm going to bring us back to the 11th century. And and let's talk Mm. about Rodrigo Belmonte again, because he is playing the role of the famous Castilian or Castilian uh, hero, El Cid, whose name was Rodrigo Diaz de Vivar. El Cid, or Rodrigo Diaz de Vivar, was a low-ranking aristocrat who turned mercenary when he was exiled by Alfonso VI. Uh, That's the Ramiro, King Ramiro in this story. And he worked Mm -hmm. for the Muslim Taifa king of Zaragoza, or in this story, what's called Ragosa. And he ended his life as the ruler of yet another Taifa kingdom. This is the kingdom of Valencia. That was actually 15 years after the conquest of Toledo, which is not something that he actually participated in, though he does here in the novel. And so yeah, Kay's made some changes there to have El Cid involved in that conquest. And then of course, he has him die in single combat not long after. But Kay also adapts a lot of material from the historical El Cid, but then also the semi-legendary El Cid, who we meet in Spanish fiction, right? Spanish uh, poetry. Uh, And then also there's a lot, uh, later than that but but Al Cid becomes a character in uh, really kind of Spanish fan fiction poetry basically as soon as he dies uh and maybe in some ways kind of an analog to well to Charlemagne I guess for for Absolutely. France and and maybe to Arthur for England right he is the kind yeah. of medieval hero who has persisted into uh modernity as the sort of one medieval figure that we all remember and have stories about and these elements that he that Kay's using the elements from the the sort of fictional version of El Cid includes uh, the drama around accusing the king of assassinating his brother, also the exile and the recall, Um, also the mission to collect a a pariahs payment that ends up pitting him against another force from the north that's led by somebody named Garcia, which then leads to the exile. I mean, some of that is stuff that we know happened historically to the real El Cid, but a lot of the personal drama there is, is really from the, the poetry. And this is all just a ton of fun, right? I mean, this book is El yeah. Cid fan fiction, essentially. And it's awesome. And I imagine, right, that Kay was also probably familiar with the 1961 epic film called El Cid that's got Charlton Heston in the title role, and then Sophia Loren as his wife. But I've never actually seen this movie. Jay, have have you seen this movie?
1: I have not seen this movie. Uh, No. Um, I I will point out that recently there is a uh, a, a, a series on Amazon Prime, a Spanish language series of the El Cid, um, of which I have watched the first three episodes, and um, my wife didn't like it that much, so I stopped after that, but I thought it was (laughs) quite good, actually. Um, And it is like a lot of these current adaptations of sort of legendary historical figures. Um, On the gritty side, it's definitely interested in trying to putatively, you know, show the history behind the legend, this kind of attitude towards... Um, towards storytelling and stuff. And so, you know, it it is the story of how the legend of El Cid grows out of rough, difficult historical circumstances. Um, But it seemed quite promising. I would like to watch some more of it for sure. Um, But this to say that, you know, in term, you know, this this is. Like you say, this is Spain's Charlemagne in a lot of ways. This, the legend continues to be told and retold and remade, um, up, up to the present day. I'm I'm really interested in this TV show which I I was vaguely aware of,
0: but I I, I didn't even think to ask you if you had seen it because I assumed not. But what you're describing sounds like you know it's it's Game of Thrones, right? Everything is you know our TV landscape has been dominated by Game of Thrones. Everybody is trying to be the next Game of Thrones, and so Game of Thrones, yeah. not just as a TV show, but like the 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 books, The Song of Ice and Fire by George R. R. Martin, are taking largely right the. Mid- the English Middle Ages and turning them into a fantasy book, and yeah. so now we've got this TV show that's taking its cue from <laughs> Game of Thrones yeah. and taking that back to Spain, the obviously much more historically. It's you know not set in a speculative or secondary world. But what I find most interesting about that is that circularly, A Song of Ice and Fire is George R. R. Martin's response to Guy Gabriel Kay's work. Absolutely, hundred
1: percent. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's right. I mean, Game of Thrones is, you know, Guy Gavriel K's work taken to a, a, a different level of sort of not cynicism, but deconstructionism of the idea of chivalry and nobility and virtue and all these sorts of things and stuff. No, I mean, you're absolutely right that we're now in a, a, a circularity here where we have El Cid produces Guy Gavriel K produces George R. R. Martin, produces Game of Thrones TV show, produces... El Cid TV show. Um, There we go. Yeah, Yeah, that's exactly what I was trying to say. That's exactly right. Nothing new under the sun. Yeah, I mean, this is exactly right.
0: Yeah, I mean, A Song of Ice and Fire is essentially the grimdark version of what Guy Gabriel Kay does, where Kay has nobility exist in his fantasy worlds, and for those people to actually... Succeed, or at least some of them, right? To like actually yeah. succeed and to to do well in the world, uh, but it's also a world still that has incest and uh, sexual yeah. assault, um, things that happen. I mean, we literally have something happen in the very first few pages of this book. Within the first hundred pages, there is something that rivals the Red Wedding, for e- yeah. e- example. And then actually, we get something again similar at the end. But Kay shines a different light on those events and and populates his world with with different characters and different values. And and that's where Martin yeah. is having a response to uh, to Kay, which is perhaps something we will talk about on this show <laughs> in the future yeah. from the other side of that. But uh, yeah. uh, that will I be think, for another episode.
1: <laughs> yeah. As a quick aside, a, a nice way to encapsulate the kind of different approaches here is that th- there is some genealogy between Amar ibn Khairan as a character and one of George R. R. Martin's characters, I think Oberyn Martel. Um, Both the kind of refined poet poet courtier, but also the fearsome warrior, um, brilliant tactician adjacent to power and so forth. Um, You know, in Game of Thrones, Oberyn Martell meets this horrific end, um, serving to underscore how this kind of character will ultimately fail in the real world. Whereas in Kay's book, Amar ibn Khairan, despite the kind of bad things he does ultimately gets a a happy story. He ends happy. Um, You know, he gets the happy ending here in a lot of ways.
0: Yeah, that's right. We should say that that the Kingdom of Dorne in Game of Thrones or A Song of Ice and Fire is uh, Spain. It's medieval Spain. That's clear on the map. It's clear in the text. It is less clear, actually, in the TV show, though it is sort of clear in the TV show. And in fact, they filmed uh, much of that, actually, in Spain, in the Andalusian part of Spain. So, you know, if if, if people want uh, to get a kind of uh, you know visual of of what al Rasan looks like. That's, it's, it's, you just go watch the Dorn episodes of Game Thro- and Game of Thrones yeah. and 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 you've got it. But uh yeah, let's uh, let's head back to, to Kay's world here. Yeah, actually oh no I mean I brought it up and I think it's a great it's a great topic and I hope we'll get a chance to explore it from the other side uh later. But let's move into Kay's world I think first by talking about religion. And we've got three hmm. pretty well-developed fantasy religions here that all have real-world analogs. And so let's go through them one by one. And, and Jay, I'll let you start by talking about uh, the, the Haddites.
1: Yep. So the Haddites, um, which are in Kay's world, the worshipers of the sun, the sun god, um, are the clear analog for medieval Christianity. Um, we know this for many reasons, uh, the the Hadite kingdoms are in the north, where the medieval Christian kingdoms of the Iberian Peninsula are. We know that the Hadite religion has spread throughout much of the rest of the continent. Ferrière, the uh, Kingdom loosely analogous to medieval France uh, appears to be Hadite. We know that over further east there are Hadite kingdoms because we get word of Hadite armies assembling to go on a holy war against the Asherites. We'll talk more about that in a moment. We also know that there is some kind of Hadite. Diaspora in Al Rasan itself, Hadites living within Asherite kingdoms because there are constant references to the existence of Hadite taverns within Asherite cities. Um, this because, in theory, Asherites are not allowed to drink alcohol, but the Hadites living there want to be able to drink alcohol. So there are places for them to do this. It's interesting the way it is fleshed out here. Um, we get a lot of sense of the ways in which Haditism, <laughs> in, uh, in, in, in of the ways in which the Haddite religion is woven into rulership and political power within the Haddite kingdoms. Um, we get nice demonstrations of this when the clerics from Ferrier show up um, and are received warmly by the ruler of Vallado. Um, and sort of recognizes them as important political figures. Um, one of the que- one of the Hadite queens um, is a particularly pious figure from Ferriere as well. It is interesting that we get these constant ideas that somehow Hadditism is much more rampant and much more important um, in this foreign kingdom of Ferriere than it is here on Esperania in some ways, which is Kay playing with the idea of, what, what role does religion play in a kind of secular leaning, yet still deeply religious political circumstance. One of the interesting things about Hadithism is that although we get a sense of sort of the ways it's woven into kingship and rulership and politics and cultural divides, we actually learn very little about its doctrine or its belief system or anything along these lines. There are no doctrinal disputes here. There is references to them, uh, a character named Ibero, who is the tutor of Raj Rodrigo Belmonte's sons, a committed Hadite cleric, makes reference to the fact that he wrote a little treatise as part of some doctrinal dispute taking place in some other part of the world at some stage. But we don't get any real fleshed out sense of what they believe about their God. Um, Was there any kind of Jesus figure in this Haddite religion? Probably not if they're sun worshipers. Um, And this, I think is something we can talk about that Kay carries through a lot of his depictions. He's very interested in religion and power and religion and difference, completely uninterested in questions of doctrine and theology, as far as I can tell. Um, So we have, We have this Hadite religion established, clearly an analog to medieval Christianity, clearly central to the political power of the Hadite kings to the north, um, and yet in some ways, curiously empty as a belief system, I would say. Yeah, we don't really know much about
0: what it actually is. We do know that it is a historical religion meaning that, yes. uh, that that it's a religion that has a foundational moment and that it is a religion that people who uh, are remembered historically converted to. These are called the old ones. And the line that Kay gives us is that uh, the, these old ones first learned the truths of the sun god. And obviously, these old ones are Romans. We know that because the other thing we're told about them is that they made the straight roads. And well, that's definitely yeah. one thing you could say about the Romans, right? Exactly. Yeah. And and we do also get uh, a bit about uh, some kind of text, some kind of scripture. But even this yeah. is... is Well, I have questions about it, right? It's called uh, The Book of the Sons of Had. and And we actually get this only because... It's this queen you mentioned who is is reading it. She is. We're told that she's reading uh, or really listening to something being read to her by a cleric. But it's the passage about the end of the world. Uh, but I immediately then wonder, right? Like, okay, so there's only one passage about the end of the world in this book. Is the Book of the Sons of Had the The Bible, like what we would call the whole Bible, or is it just one book of the Bible? That's Uh, unclear, right? right?
1: No idea. One other thing to mention, too, that we do learn about this is that there is some kind of tradition of veneration of holy persons, because we know there is this holy isle uh, to the west of Esperano where Queen Vasca is buried and where people who was some extremely pious... Uh, a ruling figure in the past and who also was vehemently anti-Kindath, excuse me. Um, a- Point of contention we will get to, and so there is something vaguely akin, maybe to the cult of saints or perhaps the cult of martyrs in this Hadite religion, whereby um, particularly holy people um, will be remembered and venerated, and people will go on pilgrimages to their their burial spots and places and things like this. Right, and, and this is an antelogue for Santiago. Right, this is this is
0: Compostela. Exactly. This is the yeah. Compostela yeah. uh, pilgrimage site and pilgrimage route. I actually wondered, Jay, if you think that Queen Vasca is an analog for some historical person, I I couldn't think of who that might be.
1: I can't think of anyone who would be linked to Iberian history. We have plenty of Merovingian, somewhat holy queens, like Queen Radigund and and stuff like this. Um, But I can't think of a perfect analog there. No, it's interesting. I mean, it's geographically, it's clearly supposed to be Compostela, supposed to burial place of uh, St. Jane. But are there any holy queens from medieval Spain? I can't think of one. I don't
0: know. Yeah, I don't know either. And I definitely have this sense, though I don't think this is ever rendered explicitly in the novel, but that I have the sense that Queen Vasca is someone who lived prior to the coming of the Asherites, right? And so that she's I think that's an right. analog to some kind of Visigoth. And look, in the real world, the Visigoths were virulently Anti-Semitic, at least in their yeah. legislation. There's a lot of uh, historiographical discussion about how much of that existed elsewhere in the culture. How much of that was actually ever implemented? Uh, we don't need to yeah. get into those debates, but um, I think that's what, what Kay has taken a cue from here, and yeah, so I and think that's right. replacing yeah Saint James or, or Saint Yago um, with this Visigothic queen who is yeah in this world right just is just known for pre- predominantly for her anti-Semitism. Um, and this is really important for the themes that Kay is working with here, where, uh, you know, religious intolerance, religious persecution is is front and
1: center here as a part of this world. And and a nice moment that you talked about Alvar de Pino as the viewpoint character for the reader, that there, there is this very nice moment he has. Um, Where he is having trouble reconciling his veneration for Queen Vasca with the fact that he seems to be falling in love with a Kindath woman Um, and Vasca, Queen Vasca had been the one who had called for the extermination of all the Kindath um, from Esperania, so...
0: I, there are a few more things that we do see about the the Haddites here. You know, we, as, as you said, yeah, we don't get much theology. We certainly don't get any actual like lines of scripture here. But we see some rituals. Uh, for one, they, they use this like sun disc that they'll wear around their neck. So this is like in lieu of a, a rosary or a crucifix. But also, we get, and I think only one time, but we do get a a depiction of a, a special prayer at
1: sunset for the god's safe night journey, which is a that like that's a pretty cool feature. I liked that. That's a pretty cool feature. And we do know we should also say that there is a ecclesiastical hierarchy um, in this Hadite religion. That is to say, um, there's a, a a priestly class, a clerical class of people. Um, it's not exactly clear how this hierarchy works. We have these clerics who come from Ferrier. Um, and are they you know, probably they're supposed to be loosely analogous to medieval bishops. It's unclear if there's a pope figure in the Hadite religion kicking around somewhere to the east or anything like that. But in good medieval Christian fashion, there is a church hierarchy. Um, that is to say there's a, a an ecclesiastical hierarchy of authoritative figures who are not part of the secular rulership. They're not kings or dukes or counts or anything like that. They are a, a, a separate class of, of authority figures, which we don't really see with the Asherites in this case.
0: No, we don't. And and yeah, these analogs to bishops are called high clerics here. High clerics. Which is. That's, yeah. that's a, it, it could have been a better name, but on the other hand, uh, it you know does what it says on the box, I guess. right? So it makes it real clear yeah. to us exactly what that is. But what is not clear is actually if there are any high clerics or, or bishops in Esperania, we don't meet a single one, and it seems it's weird. like there are not. And it seems like there probably should be. It, it does certainly in actual Iberia there were, but I think that what Kay is trying to do here is to show the reality of certainly 11th century Iberia, and I think this is also, and I think this is also true of 12th century Iberia as well. That it is actually the the, the church there, I should say, the Christian church acknowledges the the, the primacy of the Pope, but actually uses a different set of rites and uh, a different set of texts, um, a a different liturgy, maybe I should say, and that the the Pope is not actually all that involved in any of the um, ecclesiastical organization of any of the kingdoms in 11th century I- Iberia, though that is something that yeah. is starting to change right around this time. And I think that's what Kay is trying to show by having this bishop from overseas or you know from another country show up and start meddling in their affairs.
1: And I mean, from a simple plot structured standpoint, one of the things Kay is definitely trying to show is that there is this world, the peninsula, Esperania and Al-Rasan, which is not, we would not call it like a bastion of religious tolerance, but is a space where these three religions have figured out some modicum of coexistence, but they are trapped. To the south, there are the radically more devout Asherites, the Madriti and to the north are the radically more devout Yadites in the forms of Ferrier's high clerics or something. And so there's this kind of structural um, religious politics that Kay is trying to set up where The peninsula has figured out how these religions can kind of work together, but they are trapped to the north and to the south of places that have no interest in these religions working together. Um, So Ferrier here playing kind of the same role as the Majuti Desert to the south.
0: Right. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's a kind of um, um, zealotry sandwich, uh, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> we might call it at, uh, excellent. Yeah, yeah, let's. We'll get into yeah. that a little bit more after we we deal with band these names other two that religions. Come of our podcast, <laughs> yeah. Celery oh, sandwich. <laughs> yeah. That is good. actually a pretty good band name. I wasn't thinking about it in those terms, but it is actually a pretty good one. Well, before we go talk about these other two religions, Jay, I've got one more question for you here, and this is actually about um, this business with Ibero, who I think you and I both uh, wish we got more about, maybe a lot more yeah. <laughs> about. But we're, we're told that like in his backstory, he brought holy relics. And so like, that's presumably ah, that's bones, right? Relics. right of, of, of some martyrs or saints, some holy people. He brought them to Ferriere or, or France. And then he actually stayed there for a while studying uh, in, and this is now where I'm going to quote the text here, the magnificent libraries of the great sanctuaries. And my question is, are sanctuaries monasteries? Is that, is that what that means? Is that what Kay's invoking here?
1: Hmm. Well, the fact that there are great libraries would certainly make you lean towards monastery. But on the other hand, there's no sign that there are monks in this world. We hear only of high clerics. There's no monasteries or ascetics of any sort in the Hadite religion or anything like that. <sighs> It's probably just referring to cathedrals or something like cathedral schools or something like this. It'd be interesting to see what Kay had in mind there. I mean, certainly there were cathedral schools with great libraries uh, in the 11th century. And if you wanted to go study someplace, that's where you would go. You wouldn't go to a monastery to stu- to study without becoming a monk, probably. He's probably got in mind a, a, a secular clergy. um, associated with a cathedral rather than a monastery here. But I don't know for sure. It's interesting.
0: Yeah, I mean, the word, you know, sanctuary just means a a holy place. It it really was just, you know, sanctuary and monastery have some kind of, you know... close rhyming, you know, relationship there. At yeah. least, it's not really rhyming, but just, you know, when you see when you pair them together on the page, right, they both end in the same letters. And yeah, so I right. thought maybe Kay's playing a little bit ga- of, a, of a game there. But no, I think that that's right. And something else that Kay invokes, um, I think anachronistically here, though, I think is worth talking about, uh, is that this is also a world with universities, both in yeah. Al-Rasan, but then also in the the Hadite lands, not Esperania, uh, but we get them in Ferriere and then also in Batia Which is this other peninsula that's an analog for Italy. And it's maybe not entirely anachronistic, but the way that Kay is presenting them, I think, is fairly anachronistic. But this is kind of the early days of universities as well.
1: Yeah. I do give Kay a lot of credit because one one thing he does nicely here is that he is willing to depict the 11th century as a kind of era of learning, um, right? If you want to be a top notch physician in this world, like, you can go do it. Like, there's really good trainings, good educational centers for physicians here in this analog to the 11th century world. Um, and I, I think a lot of fantasy authors, um, easily fall into a trope where like in my fantasy world, um, medicine is all superstition and there's no educated physicians and, you know, medicine is backwards and barbaric and terrible and stuff like this. Kay really has taken seriously the idea that there's sophisticated bodies of medical knowledge out there. There's sophisticated bodies of poetry and learning out there. Um, he, he really does. He's He, he, he has a, he, he has a sense of how, culturally deep the 11th century was. He, re- he really does. And and the place where our Kindath physicians
0: all go study is this uh, city of Serenica in Batiara, which is clearly an analog for Salerno in Italy, which is the premier place where you would go learn how to be a doctor in both the well the, the 10th, 11th, and I think even into the, the 12th century, maybe all the way through the 12th century, that's going to be the, the case. And so, yeah, Kay has absolutely, absolutely nailed that. He does have his universities uh, being a little bit more secular than they really would be at, at, Probably. at the this True. point right there are, um we get um uh, two characters uh, who are not religious people talking about going and giving l- guest lectures at universities and <laughs> k is clearly right. envisioning yeah. the university of toronto that he lives down the street yeah. from and not yeah, envisioning right. the sort of medieval sorbonne
1: <laughs> yeah exactly yeah
0: so i will talk about the asherites here and then uh, uh we'll kick it back to jay to talk about the the kindath and uh, I'm not actually sure how clear we have really made it yet, Jay, but we've talked about language. But just to be clear, the Asherites are the fantasy reimagining of Islam. Uh, The Asherites take their name from a a prophet, a prophet among the sands in a a country called Syria. Um, Ashar is clearly Muhammad, and uh, Syria is not actually the desert of Arabia. It's clearly Syria. So there's some elision happening there, though that's, I think, very interesting. There are are Some features, some ritual features to this religion that we we get some glimpses of here in the book. One is that there are calls to prayer throughout the day, and of course in Islam there are five calls to prayer throughout the day. There is a pilgrimage back to Syria to visit uh, something that is called Ashar's Rock in the desert. Mm -hmm. Uh, This doesn't seem to be something that lots of people in Al Rasan are doing, but it is a holy virtue to do it, and obviously this is an analog to the Hajj in you know our real world's Islam. And then the the buildings, the worship buildings in uh, Al-Andalus, or al Rasan, I should say, the Ashrite worship buildings, are described really in terms of, of what a mosque would look like. They have these gold domes uh, and some other features that are clearly are minarets on them as well, though that word is not used in, in the text. Um, and so, you know, there's real clear indications that this is meant to be Islam. Uh, we also get that wine is forbidden. You mentioned this earlier, Jay, when you were talking about the Hadite population within al-Rasan, And of course, there's a real analog for that in the real world. Those would be uh, Mozarabic uh, Christians. Uh, One of the features of this, though, is not just that uh, people... uh, uh, One of the features of this is not just that Asherites in uh, Al-Rasan, in cities in Al-Rasan, need to go to these Hadite taverns in order to drink, but also the wine itself has to actually be imported from the North. This is actually something that Kay has switched up. The opposite is actually true. It's Southern Spain is where all of the, the great wine is being made. And it's the Northern kingdoms are getting their wine <laughs> from yeah, uh, from Al-Andalus, in fact. And uh, uh, so that's an interesting twist uh, there or switch there that Kay makes. But again, as you said, Kay is not interested in theology here. So the only thing that we really learn about the Asherites is that they Worship or venerate the stars. And this is in contrast to the Hadites who worship or venerate the sun. And we're going to get sort of another set of heavenly bodies when we talk about the Kindats as well.
1: And the, the wine thing becomes a running joke in this book um, because even though wine is forbidden to Asherites, alcohol is forbidden to the Asherites, um, nonetheless, we see a fair amount of them consuming wine quite liberally um, on occasion. And there's this kind of <laughs> recurring statement where a, a Yaddite or a Kindath uh, might wonder whether it's appropriate to offer wine to an Asherite guest. And will say something to the effect of, would it offend you if I offered you a drink? And they will usually accept. Um, and here, I think Kay is trying to play with the idea of a, a kind of internal debate within the Asherite religion between... The kind of quote unquote secularist Asherites and the more, how shall we say, orthodox or the more devout or the more hardline Asherites, mostly associated here with the Madridi, the tribes across the sea and so forth, who view their Asherite brethren in Al Andalus, excuse me, Al Rasan, um, as Having kind of fallen away from the rigors of the true faith and having become too secularist um, and and failing to live up to the expectations of the prophet Ashar and things like this. And it's 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 subtly and nicely depicted in many places throughout um, throughout the book. And this is
0: something that Kay is taking from one of the big cultural survivals of this civilization, the civilization of Al-Andalus, which is that we have a ton of really awesome poetry, uh, Arabic language poetry from Al-Andalus. And a lot of it's about wine. Um, and yeah. and, the, and, the, and the, the poems that aren't about wine are usually about sex. And so this has the reputation of having been this highly secular culture. Now, how, how true that really is, is unclear. Uh, and I think this is actually something of a debate among scholars who work on Al-Andalus is how much of this is Representative of any real culture versus how much of it is just literature, and if it is representative of, and if it is representative of a culture, how much of it is representative of simply a court culture and not a broader culture? Um, You know that this is a culture that would have been limited to uh, you know a few thousand people and not really the whole civilization. Those are all real debates. You know, Kay has taken a real stance here. Where no, 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 this is what this culture is like. This is what this culture is about, and um, it's it's a great way to take that cue. I think.
1: And it, but it is worth noting here that o- overwhelmingly in this book, we are moving in the circles of the highest elite of society. Um, th- you know, there's a scene involving a kind of massacre of villagers, uh, at the opening, but Kay is really fascinated, um, on Uh, the great and the high of society in this book. Every character that we meet is, you know, among the most accomplished people in the world, in their field, um, is the very pinnacle of achievement in their area and so forth. Um, You know, there are, you know, in somewhat amusing fashion, there are no truly incompetent characters in this book anywhere, right? There's no sort of like person who's being mocked. There's no ruler that is being mocked because he's terrible and everybody knows he has to be removed from the throne and stuff like that. Um, it's it, it's an interesting feature of this that there are varying levels of competence, but everybody's good at what they do in this book.
0: Yeah, that's true. I mean, we could actually describe this as uh, you know part of a genre called competency porn, which which yeah. I'm I'm here for. I <laughs> exactly. I love competency porn, so it speaks yeah, to me on that good. level. I hadn't thought about it like that, but you're you're you're
1: absolutely right. Well, we've still got one more religion we need to talk about. That's the Kindaz. The Moon Worshipers. Apparently, there are two moons in this speculative world, um, which makes it uh, about the only feature that really truly sets it apart from actual medieval Europe. As speculative fiction goes, this is pretty tightly adhering to known historical facts. But there are two moons in this world. I'm getting that right, right? I didn't just make that nope, two, up. Two,
0: two moons. One, one is white and one is blue. And this is something that Kay Good. uses in uh, a number of his books to let us know that although uh, they're not showing up on the map, that. It's all taking place on the same planet, perhaps just different parts of it, and maybe even yeah. slightly different times. Um, and so, like this is a feature that they have in that, that, that. So, and so this is a feature that this book has in common with *Our uh, Bone* as well. I think.
1: Yeah, and I think also the Serentine Mosaic, which actually maybe gives us some of the historical origins of the Asherite religion. I I think Ashar might be a character in that. I can't remember. Anyway, the Kindaths, who are the analog in this book to the Jews of medieval Europe. And we have many signs that this is the case. Um, They are living in some kind of diasporic condition. That is to say, they're kind of dispersed throughout the entire world, usually living in small communities of Kindath, often in a Kindath quarter um, within a city. We see this at the opening of the book in Fazanya, where there's a Kindath quarter that Jahania is residing in. Several other signs that sort of link them up with medieval Jewish traditions, Um, the sort of... Prominence of medical learning and medical education or physicians, one good sign of this. Um, There are several references throughout here to sartorial traditions, traditions of dress. They always wear blue and white, many references being made to blue and white shawls. Um, This also another connection to sort of medieval Jewish traditions and perhaps most notably, or the thing that is the biggest giveaway, somewhat tragically, um, is this difficult relationship that Kindath have with the Haddite religion. Now, we have no idea, as far as I can tell in this book, whether there is a historical connection between the Kindath faith and the Hadite faith. Christianity, of course, emerges first as a Jewish sect before eventually growing into a sort of splinter religion of its, on, in its own right. There's no real sign. I mean, the same thing is kind of true for Islam as well. There's no sign we have that kind of historical religion. But it is established at several points that there is a not great history of relation of Hadite Kindath relationships, including calls for the extermination of Kindath from Hadite lands. And we get a couple of examples of this happening actually in the book. Um, in the preparation for the holy war of the Hadites against the Asherites, we are told that there is a massacre of the Kindath living in the Batiar city of Serenica. We'll come back to that in just a moment. And then we eventually get an example of this kind of anti-Kindath violence taking place um, in our perspective in Fizania, um where the the Asherite citizens of Fazania are stirred up against the Kindath and march on the Kindath quarter to burn it down and to massacre all the Kindath in there. Um, so this this is grounded in. Established history in medieval Europe, the tendency for Jewish populations to be subject either to expulsions or to outright massacres at various points in time. Um, as sort of small um, diasporic communities, they were always sort of subject to other rulers. So we see no examples, for instance, of Kindath kings or Kindath rulers or anything like that. They are always living under the laws of rulers of another faith. Um, and 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 this... This tied pretty well as an analog to the situation of the Jews in medieval Europe. Right. And what's being depicted here
0: in al Rasan where this new violence in Fasana is Unexpected, although the Kindath have this long history of being aware that they need to be ready to to leave a persecution at any moment. Yeah. This is uh, something where you know this is something that is happening because of the the geopolitics. That this is a response to the coming of the Hadites and has to do with the fact that the the clerics, the Asherite clerics, would actually really like also to get rid of the the Kindath and also the Hadites from their cities yeah. as well. But it's the the heavily secular rulers who don't do that. But now there is some sense that, at least in this one kingdom, that it is time to start having a closer relationship with these clerics who are called uh, uh, wajis here in the in the, the fantasy world, uh, and to give them some of the things that they want so that they can be assured of, or so that the ruler can be assured of their ideological support, right? He's kind of looking for their bully pulpit support.
1: Um And one of the more interesting features of this is the presence of this character in the city of Ragosa, which is, uh, as Glenn mentioned, Saragossa, where we have an Asherite king who, in fact, has a Kindath chancellor. The character's name is Mazur ben Avran. Um and this is an int- the t- the two of them are depicted as having a very close relationship. Um we have several touching scenes of the two of them sort of after hours um drinking wine with each other and being extremely honest with each other and professing their uh friendship and how they will never betray each other or anything like this. Um and th- this is an interesting interesting sort of play for Kay's novel here to create this character, a Kindath character, which is to say a Jewish character who has ascended to a position of great political importance in one of these Asherite kingdoms. And his story ends quite tragically, as Jews were often suspected of in medieval Europe. He's accused of being a sorcerer, of using magic to bewitch the king, um, of being versed in the dark arts and stuff like this. And his story eventually concludes with him essentially sacking sacrificing himself to this anti-Kindath sentiment so as to advance and stabilize the position of his Asherite king and friend, King Badir of Ragosa, which is a nice way of sort of exploring the kind of, how shall we say, the ways in which this kind of religious minority here, the Kindath, um, could be nonetheless woven into real political problems at the time that that the Kindath although this kind of minority population with no kings of their own or anything like this nonetheless were caught up in the politics of the day just as much as anybody else and this, this character in particular you know
0: does this he sacrifices himself as an act of patriotism right he mm-hmm. ide- although, yeah. although he is you know he is a Kindath that's his religion and everyone else in the world would see that as his number one identity. But for him, yeah. he has this civic patriotism to his home. And so he identifies principally, it seems, as a Ragosin. And so he is willing to give up his life to save his city. And so subtly here, because this is maybe really the only place this gets explored in in this book, you know, Kay is thinking about the conflicting, identities of of you know, religiosity and yeah. uh, nationalism here. And nationalism was a really, really big theme uh, for Kay in A Song for Our Bone, where also religious people are pretty clearly the bad guys in that book as well.
1: I mean, it, it doesn't it's not stretching things too far to say that in some ways, this Kindath Chancellor Mazur Ben-Avrin's character is intended to be, in some ways, the most overt snapshot of the thematic dilemma throughout the entire book which is people dealing with the conflict between a kind of patriotic identity inflected with religion um and their sort of personal relationships right the the the, the key moment in the book is when Amar Ibn Chayron and Rodrigo Belmonte, despite the fact that they love it in Ragosa, despite the fact that they love each other and stuff, ultimately return to the services of their two kings, of their two countries and homelands, and wage war on each other. Um, it's it's suggested in the book that the two of them are of such great competence, um, so indispensable to their rulers um, that if they had chosen to stay out of the war, or if one of them had chosen sort of their personal emotions over their kind of patriotic duty or something like this, this would have turned the tide of the war. If Rodrigo Belmonte had entered the service of the Asherite King Amalek II, um, that would have turned the tide of the w- war here. And so these kind of conflicts between uh, personal relationships and national slash religious identity is the the central conflict that Kay is playing with here throughout and I think the the Kindath Chancellor is meant to 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 pull that kind of dilemma to the to the forefront of everybody's attention.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and I think Kay does this just just masterfully here, right? I mean, it's it's something that doesn't need to be you know, completely on the nose for us to 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 get here as a, as an example. And I mean, there are some things in this book certainly that are on the nose, but I think this is actually one of the more yes. the subtle exemplars here. Well, I, I want to go back to something that you said earlier, Jay, about the you know the the theology, maybe thinking about the relationship among these religions. But maybe before we actually do that, uh, we do actually get a description of a Kindath religious service. And in fact, this is the most detail we get about any religious service in the whole book. And I actually thought this is a place where maybe it's just worth reading a bit of Kay's beautiful prose into the microphone here. And we can talk about this service. I think it's quite interesting. And this is on page uh, 303 of the uh, hardcover edition that we've got, Jay. And this is something that uh, Jahane is remembering about uh, the years that she spent studying in Serenica, which is this uh, Kindath city in, uh, in Batiara. And here's what, she, uh, here's what she remembers. Here's what Kay writes. The Kindath high priest with his sweet laden voice intoning the liturgy of the doubled full moons, white and blue candles burning in every niche that night. So many people gathered, a sense of peace, of calm, of a home for the wanderers. A choir singing, then more music after, in the winding torchlit streets outside the sanctuary, beneath the round holy moons. And so, yeah, here we get a glimpse of what an actual religious service looks like. Uh, there's, uh, you know, music, uh, a choir singing. There's an uh, a priest who's intoning the liturgy. Uh, that this. Service seems to have something to do with the uh, phase of the moons right like this is a partic- particular holiday, perhaps a high holiday that she's remembering though that's not explicit and not named here but you know this is the one place in this whole book that's very much about religion where we actually get people worshiping
1: yeah there's um there's a funny mention also i i don't have the page number in front of me but there's a funny moment where the king ramiro valedo um, has has some Something goes really well for him. And usually when this happens, he decides he wants to have sex with his wife. Queen Inna is the the extremely devout uh, daughter of the King of Ferriere, who he's um, married. And that's what she's expecting in this case. But instead, he says something like, you know what? I'd like to go pray now. And so they go off to some kind of service or something to pray together or something. So we do have these moments punctuated where we become aware of these. The passage you cited, I, I had not noticed, but is absolutely the most elaborate discussion we have here. Um In particular, there's this thing we should mention, this idea that the Kindath face is dedicated to the moons that they refer to as the wanderers. That is to say, as... um, things without a home in this passage you have read right here, a sense of peace, of calm, of a home for the wanderers. Um, This, I think, intended to capture this kind of um, feature of Jewish identity in the Middle Ages that they don't have a homeland, per se. Like I said, they're all under the rule of Christian or Muslim kingdoms or something like this, um, that they are what we might recognize as a kind of diasporic population or something
0: right and you know this world this fantasy world does have some analogs to the place where Judaism is is born right this would be the the hmm. neighboring or a region that neighbors Syria where uh the Asherites or where Asher was uh, was preaching and founded the Asherite religion. Uh, this is a place that's listed on the the small zoomed out map that we get as Amuz, and I, I don't actually even know if we ever get that name in the the text, but it's at least there on the map. But there's there's no sense that that's actually where the Kindath religion originated, and and so this is a good place to go back to our question about the relationship among these three religions, because although it's not clear that there is one in the way that these characters are thinking about the history, it is clear that there must be some relationship in the way that they all venerate uh, astronomical phenomena, like celestial bodies and different ones, that we get the sun, the moons, and the stars. And in particular, there is a biological relationship between the two moons and the sun. These moons are the sisters of the sun. The moons are the sisters of the gods. So there's clearly some theological relationship between Kindath and Haddite. Uh, But then where does Asherite
1: fall in there? It's it's hard to say. There's, There's definitely... You know, a, a hint here, some some attempt to evoke the idea that these religions have some kind of historical connection to each other. That you know, the, the, their their deities are all kind of proximal in some ways. They're they're all you know, sun, moon, and stars worshippers or something like this. Um, I I'd forgotten the part about the moons being the sisters of the sun and and. Uh, And things like this. It's so, I mean, it is, it's a funny development. You know, I I was thinking as I was reading this, that with all the uh, mining of history that Kay has done here, um, one thing that would have been fun to find a way to include perhaps in the city of Ragosa or something like that would be some historical analog of the disputation at Barcelona, where a, a Jewish theologian and a Christian theologian kind of debate their doctrine in front of a king, um, debate their respective theologies in front of a king, each trying to convince uh, an audience of the truth of their faith or something. It would have been a fun, even if it was just hinted at rather than sort of entirely spelled out or something like that, it would have been a fun way to give us a little bit of an introduction to some of the, the kind of connections between these two religions. I absolutely would have loved that,
0: and and there are texts like that from Al-Andalus as well, where it, it's it's hmm, Jews and yeah. Muslims, and actually also Jews and Muslims and Mozarabic Christians. We have a handful of 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 similar types of of disputations or uh, or questioning texts there that are are super cool, and I would have loved for something like that to happen. But eh, you know, I do get it's already a six hundred page book, and yeah, you know, yeah, you know, enough. this is kind of yeah. our wheelhouse, right? This is the things that we yeah. want. I think basically every fantasy novel to be more about theology than it actually is, even the ones that are about theology, I think. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, but now we need to put all of this together, right? And and talk about uh, Reconquista and Crusade here, right? Which is to say that this is a book about war and religion and about holy war. And so let's start by looking at Kay's version of the First Crusade. And it's possible we haven't actually... Use the word crusade yet actually in this episode because it's not used in the text. But this holy war that is going to Syria to battle the Asherites that's leaving from Ferrier is an analog for the First Crusade. So maybe the first thing we should do, Jay, is talk about what is a crusade. How do we define it? <sighs>
1: How do we define a crusade? I don't know if we have a good definition for <laughs> one. Um, no, but I mean, this is sort of the point in some ways. Um, when I talk about it with my, you know, my intro students or something like this, um, uh, I, I make the point of saying that crusade ideology winds up being an extremely flexible, extremely pliable thing um, that can be used in many different contexts. Um, if you want to try to boil it down... Um, While always remembering that crusade is ultimately more a modern concept than a medieval concept, um, the phenomenon that we call the crusades is, roughly speaking, a kind of religiously sanctioned warfare um, that in its earliest manifestations tends to be about war-directed, against Muslims in control of the so-called Holy Land, that is to say the spaces associated with the origins of Christianity. It turns out that that definition, if you begin to start studying the Crusades, becomes so problematic that almost no part of it will stand up to full scrutiny or anything. There are crusades that have nothing to do with the Holy Land. There are crusades that have nothing to do with Muslims that are, in fact, directed towards other Christians. And there are things called crusades that have only the most tenuous religious motivation (laughs) behind them. But nonetheless, I mean, for Kay's purposes, he is clear. I mean, the term he uses is holy war, which is actually a pretty good alternative to crusade to use. And I think this is what he mostly has in mind here, which is to a form of warfare that is religiously motivated.
0: Right. I think that is a, a perfectly good you know, broad definition of what we're talking about when we're talking about crusades. Certainly a crusade is in that umbrella category at the very, at the yeah. very least. And yeah, there is a huge uh, historiographical debate about how we define crusade. And that is in part, uh, maybe even entirely, because as you allude to, Jay, this is a word we invented, moderns invented. Medieval people didn't have this word. They didn't call themselves this, and they didn't have a clearly developed concept of it. But we, as historians, want to identify a phenomenon and study it, right? And so, therefore, we yeah. want to come up with some terms, um, or a rubric for how we know what actually falls under this category so that we can study it. And uh, this is something that I did It's because years ago now when I, I taught my uh, War and Society in the High Middle Ages class, which I did really as a series of historiographical debates. And one that I did was on the crusades and the, the question of what is a crusade? How do we define it? And there are some criteria here that can really matter. And, and there is a, a particular scholar, renowned historian, Giles Constable, who I know is incredibly important to you in your work, Jay, who Indeed. famously divided scholars into various camps based on their answers to you know a set of, of questions. And so there are uh, traditionalists who believe that uh, you can only call something a crusade if it is going to the Holy Land. Uh, right? That is a necessary component. If it's not going to the Holy Land, right? If it's being fought in Spain, if it's going to Egypt, if it's going to Tunisia, if it's Christians versus other Christians, then it's a holy war, perhaps, but it is not a crusade. Uh, And then he called another camp pluralists, uh, who believe that the geography does not matter so long as it is something that's been called by the Pope, or at least there's some other kind of papal involvement and also pious motivation. And then there's another camp, a third camp, called the popularists, who believe that the only thing that really matters is the piety or religiosity of the participants, uh, and that there doesn't actually even need to be any papal involvement at all, so that anything um, undertaken by Christians against, well, anybody that's motivated by religion um, or piety could be called a crusade. And yeah, I, I don't think there are very many traditionalists. Left. But I think when Kay was writing this book, there still were, right? People who really thought that it's not a crusade unless it's trying to liberate Jerusalem.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. And I think Kay, like a lot of people have at various moments, when they think of crusade, they mostly just think of the first crusade. <laughs> And, you know, in some ways that's to be forgiven, because I think medieval people often did that as well. It was the only one that was successful. It was the one whose memory kind of reverberated throughout the ages. It was the one vested with apocalyptic significance by a lot of people. Um, And it was at the time something, if not novel, something that seemed um, to. precedent setting, um, that, that something new was now happening within Europe in terms of warfare and religion and ecclesiastical culture and stuff like this. And so it's very easy to take the first crusade as sort of the archetype for what you're going to think a crusade is and its most prominent feature was the liberation of Jerusalem. Liberation, I use in scare quotes. There, Um, the conquest of Jerusalem, and and this being its main focal point, we get no sense of that in K. Interestingly, the war against the first crusade that is called here, the Hadite War, holy war against the Asherites, is going to a geographical space that we would recognize as the Middle East, um, where you know sort of along the levant and stuff um but there's no sign that there's a a spot there that is historically significant to the hadite faith the reason they're going there is because it is the center of the asherite faith and they want to strike at the center of the asherite faith there's no sense of a we need to reintegrate this historically significant space into whatever the hadite equivalent of christendom is basically
0: Right. I mean, this is what I was alluding to by by talking about the map a little bit with the Kindath, right? Is that, look, there's no Jerusalem here. And and that's what the First Crusade is trying to do, right? Jerusalem in the late 11th century, the the, 1090s when the First Crusade leaves, is called and leaves. Jerusalem is, uh, and and has been for a long time, under the political control of Muslims, though the city itself is still at least half populated by Christians, and it is the holy city for Christianity, right? There are um, pilgrimage sites. People from Europe have been going to Jerusalem for centuries uh, as pilgrims going there to to worship. Uh, This is a thing for which there is actually quite a bit of of, uh, logistical and financial infrastructure, also theological infrastructure as well and the first crusade is wrapped up in all of that right and so the idea of liberation which should definitely be used in scare quotes but the idea is that the the city as a pilgrimage site needs to be protected and to yeah. do that it needs to then be under the political control of christians and then another way of thinking about it as liberation is also that the christians who live in the holy christian city ought not to be under the political control of non-christians and so that's kind of the double meaning of of the idea of of liberation there and but yeah that's all totally missing here this is just we are going to invade the, the this other religions holy city yeah. and and exactly. put them to the sword and the flame and so it Really, it is not subtle. It is not It is. It is not subtle.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, I, you know, I, w- one thing I do like about this, I will say, is that that war, that holy war, we catch only rumors of it, right? We're, we're not witnesses to it in the novel or anything. People tell us about it. People receive news about it. And one of the things that is interesting on, in an area in which there's been good scholarship recently, I think, um, is this idea of thinking about what? Would the effects of the First Crusade be not on the invaded territories, but on the populations back in Christian lands or here in Hadite lands? And one one thing we see in this is that although the Hadite kingdoms of Esperania are far away from this holy war that's being launched. Um, towards Soria and, and things like this. Nonetheless, it has implications for them. It's reconfiguring sort of Hadite politics, even though they're far removed from it and stuff. It it has a kind of reverberational qu- reverberational. It reverberates into their politics a little bit um, by sort of galvanizing populations for the idea of holy war. Um, you know the, the the kings, the 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 Hadite kings here. Don't necessarily want a holy war, uh, maybe they want to conquer al Rasan and stuff like this, but they're really not sure how this is going to play out the 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 king King Ramiro at first isn't real excited about this news about this holy war happening because it feels like it's going to force him into a certain stance that. Yeah, maybe he can use to his advantage, but nonetheless, his hand is being forced here that the emergence of the idea of this holy war has effects even on people who are not participants in it.
0: Yeah, that's a really astute observation, Jay. I had not thought about that very much because I I was mm, pretty obsessed actually with the fact that K reverses the relationship, actually, between yeah. Reconquista and Crusade, where uh, this is what's happening, right? Is that that Ramiro and and the other Hadite rulers here in Esperania, they want to conquer because they want to conquer. And what we're seeing is these, these foreign priests coming in and trying to make it uh, a war of, of religion, a, a holy war, right? And that they don't really yeah. want it to be that. And that's a major theme of the book. But actually, the First Crusade is not the first Crusade. The First Crusades happened in Spain a generation previously, that it's the opening phases of the Reconquista um, in really the the 1060s. Um, It it is true that uh, the the, the analog to King Ramiro in the real world who captures Toledo in 1085 is not putting people to the sword and the the flame, uh, the way that the actual crusaders end up doing, that he wants to govern this this city that's what he wants to do yeah. but there is religious zeal that is motivating at least part of uh of this this warfare and at the very least, has been a rallying call for people who are not from Spain <laughs> uh, to come and join these armies. And people from France have already come into Spain. Uh, not many, not nothing, nearly as big as the First Crusade. Maybe a few score uh, knights from uh, 11th century France have crossed the Pyrenees and tried to take two cities in a small valley in, in you know in the Pyrenees, um, but. Th- They've done that because of religious zeal. And the Pope has been involved in this. The Pope's been organizing some of these campaigns. And a key component of the historiographical debate around what is a crusade, and perhaps a key component of what we might call crusading, is the papal indulgence, which is this idea that going on the crusade is an act of piety. And that if you perform that act of piety, um, it is then an act of penance, which is to say it washes away the sins that you have committed in your life up to that point, sins that you need penance for. And that is something that is key to the crusading movement, but it's an idea that originates before the First Crusade. It originates in the Reconquista, but Kay has reversed that.
1: Yeah, it is an interesting sort of sort of change of trajectory or something like that. But again, is is sort of in keeping with the the particular thematic thing that he wants to depict here, which is that there is a world here of kind of um, to use a recent phrase uh, from scholarship, a world of rough tolerance um, and. Maybe could have found a way to make it work because there are no extreme religious dogmatists in Esperano or in Al Rasan, um, as of the opening of, or at least there aren't any that are fully in control or in charge of anything. Um, and if it hadn't been for the pressures of these outside hardline Hadites and Asherites. Uh, maybe this world, maybe Al Rasan could have been preserved or something like that. And so I think he he really didn't want to have um, the conquest of Al Rasan be something that was generated. The religiously motivated conquest of Al Rasan be something that was generated from within Al Rasan itself. He wanted it to be pressure from these outside, more dogmatic, more hardline Hadites and Asherites and stuff.
0: That's exactly right. And this is maybe where we can zoom back out of the Middle Ages and situate this book in North America in the 1990s and say that although this is a really cool book about 11th century Iberia, I mean, it's amazing for that. It is also about the United States and Canada in the 1990s, where religious fundamentalists evangelical christians perhaps in particular uh, have been gaining political power and there is real fear that this type of zealotry is going to be is going to have a place in politics in in canada that's kays fear and this is the same fear that margaret atwood has when she writes the handmaid's tale about 10 years before maybe 12 years before mm. this book as well right so those two books perhaps the most I don't know famous works of Canadian speculative fiction, probably right yeah. are are yeah. dealing with this same phenomenon here in the 80s and the 90s, and so that's where you know Kay is looking at this medieval situation and this this myth really of what's called the conviviencia, the the living together, right, the the uh, living together of these three religions, and saying that's the ideal we should be striving for, and and no zealots from any religion should be handed the keys to political power because that creates a bad world for everybody. And that is the message here of this book.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And, you know, we would be remiss not to mention um, in terms of troubling developments in in the recent world, the rise of anti-Semitism among them. Kay is perfectly willing to explore that in its medieval origins here. We are told um, that the Holy War that is being launched by the Adites in the East somewhere on the way to the Asherite homeland, um, has paused in the city of Sarenica, um, which is essentially a Kindath city to massacre all the Kindath inhabitants of it. And this has a perfectly straightforward analog in the history of the First Crusade, um, where a group of crusaders on the way to the Holy Land traveled through the Rhineland in Germany, which was the most extensive home of Jewish communities, and put put several of them to the sword, massacred several communities of Jews on the way to the Holy Land as part of crusading ideology. And this, I think, one of the reasons why a lot of people are a little skeptical of the kind of traditional definition of crusade as just against the Holy Land, because even in the First Crusade, it was clear that the rhetoric and the ideology of holy war could be applied to non-Christians living within the borders of Europe already, um, in this case, Jewish populations.
0: Yeah, I mean immediately, right? I mean it's 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 after the first crusade has left on crusade, but long before they've gotten there, right? So yeah, it's there from the very start, and it is something that's that's there in Spain too, right? Uh, what what to do with uh, the populations of non Christians, uh, uh, Jews in particular, actually, um, even though all of the rhetoric is really about the Muslims, uh, Jews in these cities do do suffer. Uh, perhaps disproportionately even to the the Muslim populations as well. So I'm glad you brought that up. And if people are actually interested in reading more about the Reconquista, I would recommend one book in particular. And it's a book, actually, that uh, post-dates The Lions of al rasan came out about six or seven years uh, later than that. And it's called Reconquest and Crusade in Medieval Spain. Uh, it's by Professor uh, Joseph F. O'Callaghan, who was a, a professor at Fordham University in the Bronx, a place where I know you have spent quite a bit of time, Jay. And uh, this is a highly accessible book uh, about everything that we've just talked about in this segment of the show. And is also just a great introduction, actually, to medieval Spain, high medieval Spain. Highly recommended. Well, there's a lot more that we could talk about in terms of medievalism in this book. I mean, I think we could spend a lot of time just talking about medieval medicine, though that's not either of our specialties, but it's a huge part of this book. But also about medieval state building. We could also then zoom back to modernity and talk about how that's wrapped up in 19th uh, and 18th century nationalist movements as well. But uh, our timer already shows more than two hours. So I think that we'll uh, we'll call it there and uh, maybe invite people To the forum and Reddit and social media to talk with us more about this book if they're interested. But um, I want to wind down this episode with, uh, I don't know, a a fun epilogue, (laughs) Jay. And I want to talk a little bit about music. Uh, Early in the book, when Rodrigo Belmonte's soldiers camp for the night, um, this is actually where they uh, have this kind of Vesper prayer to safeguard the sun at night, one of the soldiers plays guitar and of course, Spanish guitar, right, is a major musical genre. And there is also a lot of music in the court scenes. There's music in that uh, Kindath religious service uh, that I I read as well. And so I wondered, Jay, if you had put on any special mood music while you were either reading the book or or taking (laughs)
1: notes. (laughs) I did not put on any mood music at all while I was reading or taking notes on this. I should have. I yeah. No. Did you put on mute, mood music? I
0: did. So I have some recommendations in addition to oh, uh, the, the O'Callaghan book recommendation. I have some musical recommendation. And um, some of these are medieval and some of them are, are modern. Uh, for medieval music, I highly recommend uh, this medieval music ensemble called Ultramar. They did two volumes uh, called Iberian Garden, and what these are is Christian, Jewish, and Muslim music from medieval Spain. These two volumes came out in 1997 and 1998, so right after the publication of this book, and I'd like to think motivated by it. In fact, and uh, Volume Two in particular, which is the one I prefer, but uh, but also it actually is the one that has a piece about El Cid. It's a a song uh, about the El Cid legend. It's one episode in that in that story, uh, and it's right there. So that is a great soundtrack for this book. But I also would recommend another medieval ensemble. This is a vocal ensemble, so no instruments. Uh, And this is Anonymous 4. This is uh, for women. And they have an album called The Miracles of Santiago. We talked about him uh, when we were talking about Queen Vasca. And this is also medieval Spanish music. This album is from 1996. So also right after the publication of this book, though probably not actually in response to it, because that's a pretty quick turnaround. But that's the medieval music that I would recommend. But then I've also got some Spanish classical music that I would recommend. I would definitely recommend Isaac Albania's. He's got two great pieces for solo piano that are actually a tour of Spain. Uh, His piece called simply Iberia is the most famous, but I actually prefer the less famous uh, work that's just called Sweet Española, uh, sweet as in like, a suite of rooms or something like that, not sweet as in candy, although I suppose in English, at least it could be a double entendre there. But um, the piece called Asturias in particular became my motif for King Ramiro, and I Super, super recommend it. Uh, and then there's also the composer Francisco Tarrega. He essentially invented guitar music and is underappreciated in that capacity. Uh, but he has a piece called Memory of the Alhambra that is just great. And the Alhambra was a palace in the last remaining Muslim kingdom, that kingdom of Granada. It's uh, absolutely um, a-, a gorgeous building. It's a World Heritage site. It does postdate the events of this book, but nonetheless, it's become a kind of... Um, Synectiki, I guess, for Al Andalus, right? Because it, it it has survived and it's absolutely gorgeous. Uh, and in in Spanish, this the title of this particular piece by Torrega is Recuerdos de la Alhambra. Uh, another beautiful piece. And then finally, Jay, I will end with this last recommendation here by Manuel de Falla, who is probably the most well-known Spanish classical music composer. He has a really great orchestral piece called Nights in the Gardens of Spain. And it's, uh, again, a tour of Spain, although really it's a tour of southern Spain. And the first movement of this piece is also about the Alhambra. And uh, yeah, I just recommend all of these composers. They give you great tours of, of Spain uh, that I think make some really fantastic soundtracks for this book.
1: When we sell our TV pilot script of The Lions of Al Rasan, we'll have our soundtrack ready.
0: <laughs> well, something I will say, I bit my tongue on this earlier because I knew I wanted to do this segment. I did not watch that TV show, El Cid, but I did check out the music. I didn't like it very much. It, it was not good uh, reading music for me. So uh, not that as a recommend recommendation. Though, the Charlton Heston film, I do recommend. Um, that's uh, Miklos Rosa does the the score for that. One of the greatest film composers of all time and some, some beautiful, beautiful music there. Especially love themes, you know, you can put those on anytime Rodrigo and Miranda are interacting together, which we get twice. I mean, it would be perfect.
1: Yeah. Absolutely.
0: Well, the other thing we need to do, Jay, before we close out this episode is talk about what's next. And I, I just thought it would be fun to do this live. We had talked last time, and I think even said when we were finishing up Foundation, that we were going to do this book, The Lions of Al-Rassan, and we have, and that we were then next going to do more God K. Okay. We were going to do the Serentine Mosaic. But I think that we should not do that. And the reason I think we should not do that is simply that this is too awesome to blow through so quickly, and I would like to savor this experience and uh, save G- save Kay for some later date. It which pains me to do because that's the series of books that are actually about one of the principal events of my PhD dissertation and yes, so like indeed. I'm excited to do that but I thought it might be fun actually just for us to take a little a little break there and behoove us to do so. So I have three suggestions for you, Jay though of course we could we could do something that is not one of these suggestions as well but each of these comes from a different publishing category, uh, you know the three different publishing categories that fall within the umbrella term of speculative fiction, which is to say science fiction, fantasy and uh, supernatural horror, or maybe just horror, we should say. And so my first candidate here, Jay, is Dune by Frank Herbert.
1: Ah, uh, makes sense since we've just done foundation for sure. It
0: does. And of course, it's in the public consciousness. There's this film, though, I will confess yeah. that my my real motivation for suggesting this is that my wife, Elizabeth, is thinking about reading it over the summer, which is also oh. when you and I would be doing the reading. So that's uh, there as a candidate. And then for horror, I want to suggest the book, The Historian by Elizabeth Kostova. I have not read this book, and I, I don't know if you have, Jane.
1: I have not, No.
0: This is a book that is, is about Dracula. It is about the historical Dracula, but I think also about the novel Dracula. And it look, it's called The Historian. So like, right. it ought to have yeah. some stuff for us to talk about, right? So <laughs> uh, I, I want to suggest that. And it's a, a book that has been being recommended to me by uh, my partner in crime on other shows on the network, Brandon Buddha, for like a decade, right? This book's about a decade oh, old and he's been right trying on. to get me to read it. And then finally, another book that I have not read, but one that I know you have and that you have recommended to me, uh, and this is "The Buried Giant" by Kazuo Ishiguro.
1: Oh, it's pretty great. Yeah, that's a extremely minimalist, uh, fantasy leaning spec fiction uh, set in sort of. Oh, the the years after the Anglo-Saxon invasion, quote unquote, of Britain. Oh, it's pretty great. Oh, these are these are tough choices. Yeah, and
0: I already had this candidate here on my notes for the show, Jay, before you emailed me a few days ago to say that you were unexpectedly preparing for the start of you know this semester next week with a course about King Arthur. Right, and the very giant is a, a you know an Arth- a, is definitely a piece of Arthuriana. So it um, is, yeah. You know, while Sir
1: Gawain is a a big character in it
0: yeah so this might be you know striking while the iron is hot i suppose if we were to do this book next but i want to leave it up to you and you don't have to pick one off this list but i feel like i picked the lines of al so i kind of want you to decide what we're doing next
1: (sighs) do i have to pick right now i should pick right now. i think yeah i
0: want to do it live i think that's the fun
1: (laughs) okay i'm gonna say it's either dune or the buried giant for me in this particular case oh man it's a tough call it's a tough call. All right. Well, let's let's go with uh, you know alternating between sci fi and fantasy here. So let's do Dune as our next project. Okay. And we'll pick up the buried giant at some point, right. which I do want to do also.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, we'll do this segment again live at the end of Dune. We'll replay. We'll put a new sci fi book on there and keep these other two on there as candidates in their respective genres and see what we want to do. And um, yeah, that's awesome. I think Dune is a solid, solid choice. And it seems timely. And it'll be a new a new approach for us, I think, in terms of thinking about medievalism.
1: Absolutely, I mean, it's 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 feudal, it's empire, it's things like this still, but it's got very different twists on them than a lot of the other stuff we've done. Yeah, I think that's going to be really
0: exciting. So that was an excellent choice, and I'm glad you did that instead of me having to make the, make the choice there. But all right, I think that is going to do it for this episode. Now that we have uh, our next book picked out, and 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 we'll have that out, I think probably sometime in the early fall as when we'll get that episode out. But uh, until then, uh, I'm Glenn McDormand. Uh, Jay, let me say thanks again for joining me on my quest to reconquer the internet of my ancestors. It's always wonderful. (laughs) All right. So yeah, we'll be back in, I don't know, early fall, maybe late summer with that next installment on Dune. But I will be back in a few weeks with episodes on some classic science fiction novels by Alfred Bester and Jack Vance. And then after that, with another bonus episode on some Brandon Sanderson. So if you're not already subscribed to the show, do that now so you won't miss out. And until next time, I hope you'll remember that if more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world.